In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 74. Each psalm has a title. And the title of this psalm is Contemplation of Asaph. So according to the title, the author of this psalm is Asaph. Asaph was a great singer and musician during the time of David. And Asaph was one of three chief musicians during the time of David, along with Heman and Ethan. Sometimes Ethan is referred to as Jetuthun. But some scholars say that Asaph, the author of this psalm, was not the same that lived in the time of David, but another one with the same name, maybe one of his descendants that lived after the Babylonian uh, captivity. Why? Because as we're going to read together in this psalm, the psalm speaks about things that were done during the Babylonian captivity when the Jews were carried captive to Babylon or even after which was actually very long time after Asaph even during David the temple was not built so how Asaph who did not live in this time write about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. How come? The answer actually, we can find it in First Chronicles chapter 25 verse 1 and Second Chronicles 29 verse 30. Because in these two verses, it explains that Asaph was a prophet in his musical composition. So this psalm actually is composed as a prophecy. So Asaph, with the prophetic eye, he was able to see what will happen in the future and composed it in this psalm, Psalm 74. This psalm is a plea and a prayer in great sorrow from the destruction of the sanctuary and of the city of Jerusalem. And again, he wrote it in a prophetic way. It is a psalm of lament, but it is also a psalm that displays great trust and confidence in God. The psalmist is crying out to God and pleading with him to remember his people. God has always been faithful in the past. Now the psalmist calls on God to be faithful once again. So this psalm prophesied about the time when the temple was ruined, when Jerusalem was burned, when the prophets were scattered or destroyed. Some believe it refers to the day of Nebuchadnezzar and the destruction of the temple by the Babylonian. 
which is in year 586 before Christ, when the nation of Israel experienced one of the most devastating events in their history as a nation. Because of their sin and their rebellion, God allowed the Babylonians under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar to take the capital city of Jerusalem. They tore down the walls of Jerusalem, ravaged the city, destroyed the temple, and then burned the temple. But some argue that this psalm does not refer to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Chaldeans, rather by the oppression of the Jews by Antiochus Epiphanius in the year 170 to 165 before Christ. Yet, some say it refers to the desolation that took place under the Romans after the 70th year of the Christian era, which actually you will find some verses support the last view. It refers to the complete destruction of the temple that will never be built again, which happened in year 70 AD after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ by around four years. So in several ways, Psalm 74 can be looked to as a model prayer. Many of us will find ourselves at times in our life standing in the midst of ruins. It may be a consequence of sin. What is the temple of God? The temple of God is us. You are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit abiding in you. So you can take this psalm in a spiritual way that when sin destroys my temple, then I'm crying to God. When God is perceived during this time as a way distant, as abandoning us, so this psalm can each one of us pray personally, spiritually, when I am in a state of ruins because sin overwhelmed me and God seems to be distant or away from me. So we may feel that God has cast us off. So Psalm 74 is helpful guide for how we should pray in times like this. This Psalm is 23 verses. Verse 1 to 3, the Psalmist pleads with God. 8 to 4, the wickedness of their enemies. 9 to 17, prayers to God to act on behalf of his people. 18 to 23, plea for relief from oppressors. Tonight actually we'll stop at verse 12. So tonight we'll take from verse 1 to verse 12 only. Start with verse 1. O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your angry smoke against the sheep of your passion? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old. 
the tribe of your inheritance which you have redeemed this Mount Zion where you have dwelt so Asaph lived and served during the reign of David and Solomon which were generally times of security and blessing for Israel and as I told you these verses gives us an indication that this is a prophetic psalm Asaph wrote, wrote it as a prophecy and the psalm begins with an initial plea to God for forgiveness the psalmist feels cast off and forsaken by God he is very aware of the anger of God toward his people although the psalmist feels abandoned by God how did he respond to the abandonment not with anger not with resentment not with questioning God's love but he responded to the feeling that he is abandoned by God by prayer he goes to God with his frustration and his requests St. Augustine comments on why when he said oh God why have you cast us off forever so St. Augustine says Asaph did not criticize but inquire wherefore for what purpose because of what have we done this and one thing is repeated in the first two verses that some appeal to the nation's relationship to God he used the word his sheep his congregation his purchased his redeemed people in verse 1 and 2 for example why does your angry smoke against the sheep of your passion so he's reminding God who are the sheep of your passion who are your congregation remember your congregation you purchased us which you have purchased of old who are the tribe of your inheritance you have redeemed us which you have redeemed this Mount Zion where you have dwelt in the temple so the psalmist appeals to God's demonstrated love for his people by referring to them as the sheep of your passion he appeals to the compassion and tender care of the shepherd as if he is saying can the shepherd slay his own sheep God never did nor will ever cast us off nor he will cast away his people but what's happening here usually sin is the bottom of all the hiding of the Lord's face when the Lord hides his face means there is sin actually is hiding in our hearts and when one is under chastisement he ought to have the wisdom to ask God to reveal that sin that's hidden in me if I feel that God is abandoning me God is distant from me then definitely there is sin hiding in my heart 
I need to ask God, reveal this sin to me. As David said in Psalm 139, examine me, O Lord, search my heart. See if there is a wicked way in me. Reveal this wicked way to me and guide me to way everlasting. Reveal the sin that I may repent of it. I overcome it through your grace. And I will stay away from this sin. God is never ever weary of his people so as to forsake or to spite them. And even when his anger is turned against us, it is but for a small moment. Why? For our own good. As I've told him that his anger like a fire, why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? So the presence of smoke indicates fire. And the language here is such as often occurs in the scripture when anger or wrath is compared to fire. So from such a despair, Asaph is asking God to change the way he feels toward his people and to remember that Israel belonged to him. Israel is his congregation. He asked God to remember that Israel is his precious people. He brought them, he purchased them of the slave market of the nations. He purchased them from the slavery in Egypt. So the psalmist in speaking to God's best blessing on the children of Israel calls Israel your congregation, your purchased, your redeemed. It is a good thing in prayer to remind God of his best mercies toward us. Because actually God does not forget. But when we remind God in prayer of his mercies toward us, indeed we are reminding ourselves of God's past work in our life. Asaph asked God to remember that he had dwelt among his people in Jerusalem in Mount Zion in a special way because the temple was built in Jerusalem, in Mount Zion. Asaph thought that if God would only remember his special care and connection with Israel, he would rescue them. He therefore brought many reasons and appealed to God in prayer. St. Augustine says, can this verse 1 and 2 by any means be the voice of the Gentiles? Has he possessed the Gentiles from the beginning? No, God did not possess the Gentiles from the beginning. But he has possessed the seed of Abraham, the people of Israel, even according to the flesh, born of the patriarch of our fathers of whom we have become the sons, not by coming out of their flesh, but by imitating their faith. So, St. Augustine is saying, although these verses are not about the Gentiles, about the Israel, Israel, the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
very children according to the flesh. But we can apply these verses to the children of Abraham according to the faith. Because as St. Paul explained in Galatians chapter 4, Who is new Israel? Who is new Israel? New Israel are not the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob according to the flesh, but those who have the faith of Abraham. So, these verses can be applied to us because we are the new Israel. Christians are the new Israel, who are the children of Abraham, not according to the flesh, but according to the faith. They have the faith of Abraham. And some scholars agree with St. Augustine and believe that by saying, your inheritance, which you have redeemed, he meant the redemption of the church of God from sin, from Satan, from the world, from hell, from death, by the blood of Christ. So when he said, your inheritance, which you have redeemed, is not speaking about the nation of Israel, but speaking about the new Israel, the Christian, that God redeemed them from Satan, from sin, from hell, from the world, from death, by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, who are the people who are the chosen by the Lord for his inheritance. Then in verse 3, he said, lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations, perpetual desolation. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. So the psalmist next in verse 3, turn the attention of God to the destruction upon the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem by his enemies. He asked God to hasten to view the desolation of the temple and come speedily to their rescue. God had deserted his sanctuary, sanctuary which is the symbol of the divine presence. That's why when God distanced himself, abandoned the sanctuary, the Gentiles, the heathen people, had invaded the holy place and had damaged everything. Damaged everything. So Asaph here supplicates and urges God to return to them, that by returning only, this can restore the temple, the city, the country to their former happy state. He said the enemy has damaged everything. Maybe he meant by profaning and destroying the temple, either by Nebuchadnezzar, 600 years before Christ, or Antiochus, 170 years before Christ, or Titus, 70 years after Christ. Or maybe Asaph was looking at, at the end of the times, the destruction by the Antichrist, who will be seated in the temple and the church of God, declaring himself as God, as St. Paul 
explained in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4 and setting up idolatrous worship in it and blaspheming the tabernacle of God and those that dwell therein. And the word perpetual desolation actually confirm that this psalm is a prophetic psalm, the prophetic nature of this psalm. Because when the temple was destroyed before the Babylonian captivity, Azra and Nehemiah were back in Jerusalem after 70 years to begin to rebuild the temple. So the ruins, we cannot consider it perpetual at that time. But the temple truly became everlasting ruin, perpetual ruin, only after the destruction by Titus, 70 AD. After that destruction, the temple still, until this day, has not been rebuilt. Only the remnants of the retaining war remains of those in the perpetual desolation or everlasting ruins. Verse 4, your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. So Asaph asked God to defend his sanctuary, his tent of meeting where he meets with us. The enemies of God declared the victory over God course is false declaration by placing their own victory banners in the temple so Asaph saying this is your meeting place it is the tent of meeting or the temple where you meet with your people he as I told you it's a prophetic psalm so the temple is meant here the courts of the temple were filled with the enemies of God instead of reverent worshippers. They declared wild shouts, roaring of triumph instead of the praises of Israel. Instead of the voices of the priests and the choir, there have been heard the brutal cries of the heathen as they shouted at their work of destruction like lions roaring over their prey. They set up their banners for science. They set up their idolatrous symbols like statues and images used in the war were set up over God's altar as an insulting sign of victory and of their complete authority over the temple. Verse 5, they seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. So the enemies, and I want all of you to take this not only in a literal way, but in a spiritual way, that what Satan does to our heart, our mind, our soul, when he attacks us. So the enemies, like men, lift up axes in the forest among the thick trees. They want to destroy everything. Now they break down its carved work 
God actually created us in His image after His likeness. So Satan comes and destroy, break down what God inscribed in us, His image and His likeness, all at once with axes and hammers. So in verse 5, the enemy are compared to woodcutters chopping down a forest. The ruthless destroyers go to work like woodcutters in a forest. The carved pillars, the beautiful carved pillars of the temple are no more than so many trees to shop. As they go to the forest and they shop the trees, they went and destroyed and broke down the beautiful carved pillars in the temple. Those who oppose God had come with axes and hammers to destroy. They destroyed the magnificent ark work and woodwork made by the children of Israel to honor God. Formerly, it was an honor to be employed in cutting down the tree to build the temple. They cut down the trees to build the temple. Now it's the opposite. Now, the fine carved work which Solomon made was demolished at once in an offensive manner with axes and hammers. This may have been done either by the Chaldeans in Nebuchadnezzar time or by the Syrian in the time of Antiochus or by the Romans in the time of Titus Caesar Vespasian. Axes and hammers were not sufficient for their purpose, but they have set a fire. As we read in verse 7, they have set fire to your sanctuary, they have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. I remember this verse after the terrorists, uh, after the revolution in Egypt, and they went and set fire in most of the churches in Egypt. I remember this verse, they have set fire to your sanctuary, they have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. It was in August. So, the psalmist used vivid language to describe the enemy, their obvious disregard for God and their thorough destruction of the city, especially the temple. The original burning of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar is described in 2 King 25 verse 9. And the temple was later defiled by Antiochus Epiphanius, who set fire to the gates of the second temple, as we read in 1 Maccabees 4.38. And the Jewish historian Josephus described this. Antiochus compelled this 170 years before Christ. Antiochus compelled the Jews to dissolve the laws of their country and to keep their infants uncircumcised and to sacrifice swine flesh upon the altar. Swine is considered unclean animal. 
So he forces the Jews to sacrifice swine flesh upon the altar. Josephus, who personally witnessed the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans in year 70 after Christ, also wrote of the burning and defiling of the temple when the Roman destroyed it. Having successfully attacked the sanctuary of God, the enemies of the Lord wanted to destroy the people of God altogether. So after they have set fire to your sanctuary, they have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. In a spiritual sense, Satanists start by actually setting fire in our hearts. Fire of lust, fire of anger, fire of envy. And after he sets this fire in our hearts, then Satan says, let us destroy this person completely altogether. They have burned up all the meeting places, the, the soul, the mind, the heart, the spirit, where God can meet us. They burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. So, they hoped to do this when they burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. During the time of Israel, they had the temple, but they had synagogues. Synagogue meeting place where people gather together to listen to the uh, scripture or to be taught by the religious leaders of Israel. So it seems that there were meeting places of God throughout the land of Israel. When Israel was obedient, these were not places of sacrifice because he only sacrificed in the temple, but places of prayer and hearing the scripture. Because the Levites were commanded to teach Israel the scripture. That's why they established meeting places, synagogues. So it makes sense that there might have been meeting places of God in many communities, even before the synagogue became an established institution. So even before building the synagogues, there were meeting places. Because the nation of Israel was used to hear the word of God in these meeting places. Verse 9, it's a sad verse to explain the misery of Israel because of their sins. We do not see our signs. There is no miracles, there is no signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. So God completely disappeared in their life no signs, no prophets. And also they don't know for how long this will happen. The nation of Israel was used to hear from God. God spoke to them through signs and through prophets. But now the psalmist in verse 9 expresses the absence of any communication with God. 
not only have they been defeated by their enemies, but also God is no longer speaking to them. The enemies of God and his people succeeded in badly damaging the spiritual life of Israel, which happens when Satan attacks us in a spiritual sense. He will completely or badly damage our spiritual life. So, if we compare verse 9 and verse 4, verse 4, the enemies, they set up their banners for science. So the enemies set their banners for science. And for Israel, we don't see our signs because they were replaced by the banners of signs as a banner or sign as a miracle. We can understand it in both ways. We don't see our signs. So you can take verse 9 in direct contrast to what verse 4 says. The heathen signs are now set up in the temple. And the signs of Israel disappeared. While their abominations are in the temple, points of severe profanity, and they were seen clearly and visibly, the signs of the invisible God, his wonders that were done for Israel are no more seen. According to St. Augustine, the talk here represented the situation of the Jews after captivity when they lost everything. When they no longer saw signs which reveals the presence of God in their midst. There are no signs like splitting the Red Sea or the Ten Plagues, nothing. And when there were no longer prophets, no prophets, except for a very few, time, a very few prophets, actually after the captivity and the question here they wondered for how long for how long they became as though in darkness and did not know how long it was going to last that's why in verse 10 they asked the same question oh god how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? How long? So, verse 9 also applied to the situation of the Jews from the days of the prophet Malachi until John the Baptist. During this time, no prophets and no signs until John the Baptist came. And also, the, verse 9 applies from the days of the destruction of the temple 70 AD until now. No signs in, in, in Israel, no miracles, no wonders, nothing actually to uh, manifest the presence of God in their midst, and also no prophets. And no one knows how long the adversity will continue and when the deliverance will come. For the captivity in Babylon, we knew it was 70 years. How long the Babylonian captivity would continue is known. 
and it would be 70 years and no longer. And from Malachi to the coming of Christ, the prophets searched for the time of salvation and redemption of Christ and they knew it. They knew the time from Malachi to the coming of Christ. If you study the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel actually fixed the exact time of the incarnation of the Son of God. But the question how long, we don't know for how long is for the present time. From the destruction of Jerusalem 70 AD, how long until the restoration of the remnant of Israel? How long? We don't know. How long when the 1260 days of the reign of the Antichrist or the church being the wilderness will end? We don't know. Therefore, some say that this verse, verse 9, fits best to the time after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans until the time in which we live today. Because the last prophet that was sent by God to the children of Israel was John the Baptist. No other prophet after John the Baptist. And the last sign from God to the children of Israel was the resurrection of Christ. No other sign after the resurrection of Christ. So, no signs since the resurrection of Christ, no prophet since John the Baptist. So, the question how long? Nobody knows the answer to this question. The Psalms in verse 10 begins with an appeal parallel to that in verse 3. When he entreats God to have pity on his people's need. And here, to have regard to his own honor. In verse 3, he said to God, Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolation. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. So we need you, God. Turn to us, deliver us, rescue us. In verse 10, the same appeal, but he is addressing the honor of God. O God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? So here in verse 10 about the honor of God, the psalmist stand astonished before God's long suffering with the wicked people who keep on reproaching God and blaspheming his name. For how long you will endure this? For how long you will let the enemies reproach your holy name? So this may be understood also of the many enemies of the grace of God and of Christ right now. Those who reproach and blaspheme the name of God the Father by denying his sovereignty, omniscience and justice. And those who reproach and blaspheme the name of Christ by denying his divinity. Verse 11, Asaph is saying, Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. Asaph is asking God in verse 11, 
Why do you keep back your right hand? The right hand of your power hiding it in your bosom. Why not show forth your power and consume them as it were in a moment? The hand, especially the right hand, is the instrument by which we use a sword or any weapon. So the expression here is equivalent to asking why God did not interfere to save them. Asaph did not lose confidence in the power or ability of God. That's why he told him, stretch your hand. He knew that if God puts forth his hand of power against these enemies, he would destroy them. The answer to this question, why you are always holding back your hand, how long, are not revealed, are not answered. Asaph doesn't say or answer that this is how long this suffering would continue. He did not answer. He did not give us an answer. Nor Asaph revealed the reason why God actually is was holding his hand and the nation is enduring all these problems. Usually, with every trial, consists of two problematic questions. Why and how long? Why you allowed this? And for how long will endure this? So, how Asaf dealt with these two answers to question? How long and why you distance yourself? And there is a lesson for us here. When we go through trial and we don't know for how long and why God actually is distant from us, why he is not intervening or interfering to deliver us. So let us see how Asaf dealt with this feeling of distancing. How does Asaf cope with his circumstances, not knowing how long or why these things are happening? So while the psalmist has emphasized the devastating nature of the situation and the seeming silence of God, he remains confident in who God is and his power to intervene. So, in verse 12, which is the last verse in our Bible study tonight, he said, For God is my king from old. God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. That's how he coped. That's how not knowing the answer to these two questions, how long and why, he assured himself and he comforted himself and he started to remind himself with the mighty works of God that has done in the past. And God is the same yesterday, today and forever. He will not change. Even if I don't know for how long, even if I don't know why, God doesn't change and God is powerful and almighty. When he will intervene, everything actually will end. All the problems will end. So comfort rises from what? From the thought of God's previous deliverance of his people and of his other great mercies. When we go through difficult time, when we remind ourselves with the mercies of God, and how he delivered us before, and he delivered other people also. So 
this actually will strengthen us during the time of trial. That's why from verse 12 to verse 17, each verse begins with the word you or yours. It is reminding of what God had did. You divided the sea. You broke the heads of Levathan. You broke open the fountain and the flood. The days is yours and the night also is yours. You have set all the borders of the earth. So he reminded himself who God is and his power. God reigns and continue to rule. That's why he said, God is my king. In verse 12, for God is my king from of old. God reigns and continue to rule. God is the only place that deliverance can be found. If there is anyone who can help us in our turmoil, it is God. No one else can save. No one else has the power to deliver. And after Asaph meditated on the royal authority of God by saying, God is my king of old, then from verse 13, he starts to speak about his great power. This actually concludes our Bible study tonight. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.